Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Three, two, one. One. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Um, unfortunately, Jason couldn't be with us today. He unfortunately had an emergency. So you're going to have to uh, be used to just my voice and Dr. Dugan, who we're introducing just now. Um, she is currently the medical director of PMNR at Rush University. Um, she actually started off on an interesting path where she went to get her doctorate in physical therapy first um, at Northwestern before switching gears and coming back to medicine um, and did her residency in physical medicine rehab at Shirley. Ryan, which was back then called the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. Um, she is now serving at Rush and she is support certified in PMNR, electrodiagnostic medicine, pain medicine, and sports medicine. And outside of just being a physician, she's a huge advocate. She does a lot of work. Um, she's the chair for Rush Women's Leadership Council for the Americans with Disabilities Act Committee and a lot of other things. She's also very active with uh, research and has many publications and most recently won the Pastoral Legacy Award at uh, AAPMNR in 2019, which I was there personally witnessed, which was a great experience. So. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for your time. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Is there anything that I missed in that? Well, that I you think, like? Yeah, I think I've been a student of uh, physical activity and movement since uh, my, my family of origin. Just briefly have a brother with uh, cerebral palsy who had lots of rehab when I was a kiddo uh, and who taught me a lot of lessons about diversity and inclusion. And then also as a uh, an athlete who got... Um, who got just the beginning of Title IX. I actually ran on the boys' cross-country team uh, oh, wow. until my junior year of high school, and we, we ended up with a, a, a women's cross-country team. So I um, have enjoyed organized sports as well as um, the power of movement. Yeah. What part of your journey thus far has been, like, the most impactful? Uh, Is there, like, say, a shining moment somewhere? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say probably my childhood and... Being an advocate for Terry, uh, my brother, is uh, what has really led my mission in life, which is to be the voice of people that don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. Where do you see your career progressing from here? Uh, really uh, continuing my work on ableism, sexism, racism, uh, and how to think about things like health inequities from the lens of uh, physical activity. So if yeah. I could, um, uh, a lot of my research in the last 10 years has to do with working in community where community members might be surprised to find out that the number one cause of death is diabetes uh, rather than gunshots, like on the west side of Chicago, because mm -hmm. in the newspaper, we hear a lot about gunshots and violence is horrible. Um, and and uh, it turns out that uh, superseding that is a path to uh, disability and early death related to diabetes, hypertension, and other uh, chronic diseases. 
Yeah. And I actually just made a post on Instagram today talking about that. Um, there's a lot of, for whoever's well, listening to this, we're recording this right now during um, a lot of the protests are got, going on after the uh, murder of George Floyd. So I made a post today because I've been reading a lot about these different health disparities and racism within medicine. And yeah, definitely a lot of the uh, problems with those communities medically are kind of in the shadows compared to a lot of what you see in the media. And I think it's very amazing and awesome work that you're doing to try to highlight that and try to improve that. So yeah, thank you and, for that. And, and I think Mr. Floyd's death on top of uh, noticing that people are dying from more so from COVID, uh, brown and black people, the two together just really call out the institutional racism that is part of the, the march to an early death. So why is there a 16 year life expectancy gap from Lincoln Park to Garfield Park? It's complicated yeah. and it's 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 uh, it's going to take us a long time to dismantle, but we're we're on it, you know, and I think as a rehabilitation provider, because we know about social determinants, we know what people go home, all the struggles there are. We are really um, a good group to be right in the middle of, of dismantling some of these problems. Definitely. I think preventive medicine is going to have a incredibly large role in that because a lot of the um, interventions, I guess, that are in preventive medicine are like movement and in nutrition, which is going to be more difficult if the appropriate resources are not there. But That's it's one right. of the best resources and best interventions that we have because it prevents so many of the other conditions for, let's say, if they don't have access to healthcare in some of those communities, then this is kind of the next best bet. So you don't even have to use it. Yeah, and speaking of those communities, the 16-year the, the death gap is, is down about six stops of the blue line, and you just heard it go by. So if you hear noise on the podcast, I don't have my headphones in, and the train is just there, but it's a good reminder that we are not all living the same life experience. So when you think about being able to exercise, for some people, it feels like a huge luxury exercise are you kidding me yeah like i have time to exercise so so breaking it down and understanding that doing something is always better than doing nothing when it comes to movement and that you need extrinsic as well as intrinsic motivation uh and that you know lastly when you're dealing with all these other stressors um you may feel um anxious or depressed it may not be safe to go out and exercise so the one size fits all model is just not gonna get us there Definitely. 100% agree with that. And I think we've touched on that in a lot of episodes, if uh, you all have been listening, um, that it always starts with something very small, doing whatever you can, fitting the circumstances. It doesn't mean that you have to like go out and get a gym membership and like start powerlifting or like Olympic lifting or something. Just do what you can. And that's the amazing thing about preventive medicine is that you can apply it to kind of whatever situation you're in, but just do what you're capable of at that point. So Dr. Dugan, I'm going to ask you uh, the first leading off question. Um, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Uh, preventive medicine means to put hospitals out of business, to actually <laughs> think about the path to, which is why we don't get a whole lot of, you know, love from a, a big system that's spending a lot of money on heart attacks and drug replacements and cancer care. And not to be uh, a Pollyanna, we, we can't always prevent cancer as an example, but to understand what are the pathways that lead us to uh, diseases, especially diseases that disable and will kill us and how to make recognition of those pathways as important as the treatment of the diseases so that we can have less people impacted by the disease itself. 
Yeah. I always, uh, an analogy that I like to use is kind of like a, um, like a faucet or bathtub or something where the, uh, water is just going crazy. And for some reason you can't stop it. And the current medical system kind of is just trying to get a bucket to like catch all the water and do as much as they can and like toss it out and make sure that the tub doesn't overflow. But preventive medicine is kind of identifying why there's so much water coming and then shutting off that faucet from the beginning so that, um, we don't have to worry about the rest of it and all the associated expenses and different no. healthcare procedures and maybe overdiagnosis, which you've touched on in other podcasts as well. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I know we're in the, in this moment of time with the, the murder of Mr. Floyd. Um, I saw a really cool talk about how preventive medicine is sort of having a fence at the edge of the cliff. But if you look down the cliff, there's an ambulance, but if it has a flat tire or if there's like a, supposed to be a, a, a some kind of a net that catches you and the net has a hole in it, you really are going to have a different ability to have preventive medicine in different, in different segments of our, of our community in Chicago land. So even though the individual is trying to do their part, there may be structural issues that have to be addressed in order to really provide preventive medicine. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I think a lot of preventive medicine right now is kind of set up towards more of those people that can afford the resources and access to it, that are able to go to the gyms, that are able to take classes where they can learn about it. And like you're saying, if you go into that uh, ambulance and the tire is flat, metaphorically speaking, then obviously you're not going to get the same result as someone who has like a perfectly luxurious ambulance going. So... Right. We there needs to be a lot of work done within preventive medicine uh, itself to make sure that it's accessible to all communities and that there's no inherent racism or biases within that system as well. Yes. Uh, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit sure. um, to ask a little bit more about your background. So in the uh, introduction, I mentioned that you went into physical therapy first. I did. So what made you go into physical therapy, and then why did you switch to medicine after that? Uh, I like the practicality, the applicability of physical therapy, the one-on-one -on -one care. It, I had really seen that model growing up with my brother um, as an athlete with injuries, um, you know, had come across physical therapy, dislocated a kneecap in, in college, which changed my, my athletic abilities. Um, so it was a very personal choice. And after about five years, maybe after about four years, I realized that there were different ways to have an impact. Um, I was curious about some of the other things that would happen in an operating room or in the emergency room. Um, I wanted to kind of think more about impacting patients um, more um, specifically with medicines and diagnostic testing. Um, I, I definitely miss the time with patients when you're a physical therapist, you make these relationships with people that I do make as a physician, but just not uh, at, at such a, uh, high level because your interactions are fewer. Um, and I also wanted to think on a systems level about how could I make a difference, not only in that patient interaction, but how do I start to think about people's health more globally? And pretty quickly, it became clear to me that rehabbing somebody beyond the problem they showed up with to a life of physical activity was really the way that I could be most powerful. And then I was able to work with my preventive medicine department to do actual interventions in communities, especially communities that, you know, that were dying uh, prematurely. Yeah. Um, 
I was going to say, it's amazing that there's a department of preventive medicine, first of all, because you don't hear that a lot. And it's great that you're doing a lot of work there. Um, when you were kind of deciding on becoming a physician and doing all this like rehab sense with the broader perspective of it and the whole patient, their socioeconomic status and whatever else goes on to the patient care. Um, what made you kind of lean more towards the woman's health side? Cause I know you do a lot of work in that are kind of the expert. Yeah. I mean, if you, when you go through your medical training, you understand a lot of studies are done on the 70 kilogram white male. Uh, that's kind of the, the model for a lot of research in, um, in American medicine and maybe even across the globe. Um, it turns out that women aren't the same shape, the same kilogram, the same gender. Uh, we have a different sort of hormonal system. We have a different system of, of being in the world. My older sisters, were, I have several that are great athletes, but they never got to participate in sports. Um, so I wanted to think, what was it about women in particular, their, their body habitus, their physiology, their life experience? And uh, basically, as I went through my career, I, I've morphed from, like when I was a new attending out at Harvard at the um, PM&R department uh, at Spalding, I looked at ACL tears and athletes and looked at working with uh, biomechanists at the American College of Sports Medicine, lots of cool studies around uh, training young girls and women how to jump and land, really um, infused information I would use if I was you know, working with a, a bunch of college athletes in the Boston area. Uh, when I was pregnant, I got really interested in all the musculoskeletal aspects of carrying and delivering a child which is a pretty phenomenal concept if you think about sports medicine oh, as yeah. muscle origin, insertion, and action. Wow, for nine months, things just morph. And uh -huh. then the act of delivery itself would end up with, uh, ideally, a, a short recovery period, but non-ideally, other types of injuries that were really in the wheelhouse of a physician who talks about bowel, bladder, sexual function, back to work, taking care of an infant. And now as I've aged further along, I'm super interested in menopause, post-menopause, uh, middle ages as the beginning of your run-in into aging. We know a lot about aging women. Uh, there's lots of geriatric studies, not a lot about midlife women. So that's kind of where I've landed recently with my, uh, with my clinical and research work. Since we've been speaking about a lot of uh, biases and racisms and different things in the system, have you noticed any specific biases that are against women um, within the current medical paradigm? Sure. Um, just like in the um, health disparity literature around people of color, there is issues around women and, you know, their pain complaints and being taken seriously, um, giving women chemotherapy doses that were really for a 70 kilogram man was an issue not that long ago. Now we have studies that really look across multiple sites so that you can include enough women in the study to understand what is the right dosing for a female physiology as well as by by you know by BMI or by body body shape that those kinds of things so that's gotten better one of the questions that I was going to ask is why is it so important that we address women's health, but everything that you've been talking about kind of is just like self-explanatory as to why it's so important because the physiology is like different. There's clear differences. And as we've been talking about in medicine, it seems that a lot of things are built for that 70 kilogram male. Yeah. So it's obviously important that we address the specifics of a patient. Like if a patient is different than the 70 kilogram male, then we obviously have to adjust medications, um, treatments, procedures, whatever it is to that person and that specific, uh, female in this instance. So that's 
clearly why it's important, but is there anything to add to that and why addressing it's so important? Yeah. Well, I think as an example, there's a study called the study of women's health across the nation. It's shortened to the SWAN study, S-W-A-N. Mm-hmm. And as an example, um, it's, it's a seven site study with uh, every site having a group of uh, white women as well as a, a non-white population. Ours is black and white here in Chicago on the South side. And uh, there was a little pushback to calling it the swan study because swans typically picture our white swans. So they actually changed our local name to the Women in the Southside Health Project, the WISH Project. And in the WISH Project, we're able to take a look at things like, why do women have whistle clean arteries until they hit menopause? And then they start to get quick, rapid onset of atherosclerosis. So in men, we have all these studies of soldiers who die young in the field. And they would have little by little more and more atherosclerosis and would die of heart disease. In women, the number one killer is heart disease, but it comes on in most women rapidly. So if you're a woman in midlife and people don't understand that, you may come in with an atypical presentation, belly pain instead of chest pain, and it may lead to morbidity, meaning bad outcomes, and mortality, meaning death, if you don't understand that. Yeah. Speaking to that specifically, how do you prevent that? If in the, like, if their arteries are whistle clean, uh, all the way up until a certain age, and then all of a sudden it like hits, is it still, can you still prevent it while it's whistle clean? Or does that mean like, how do you work with that? Yeah. Good question. There's probably some genetic part of this that you may not be able to modify, but in our studies, at least epidemiological studies where we follow these women, women that were eating the amount of calories that they were burning Women that were physically active, meaning they did about 150 minutes a week of physical activity, and women that had lower stress scores all had less atherosclerosis. Because in Chicago, there was a sub-study where we looked at their uh, carotid arteries, as an example. Okay, so for anyone listening... Can fall on the window? Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> I'm, so I'm not sorry. sure if it's raining out here either. I know we're not too far apart. Hey, you know what? This it's is not real, here yet. This is real life and real research and clinical <laughs> care. You have a plan and then it goes a little sideways and you just yeah. keep on going. So I'll You just keep improvising. <laughs> oh, for sure. Sorry. So anyhow, um, in the study, we then said... Well, why don't we try to make an intervention in the community? Uh, in the is same- this, this is the SWAN study? Yeah, the SWAN study. If, okay. if the EPI data tells us you should be watching what you're eating, you should be reducing your stress, and you should be moving, then let's do an intervention where we try to work on all three of those aspects to then have a positive effect, uh, you know, at least theoretically on the atherosclerosis of the, of the people in the study and, and women in the future who get the message out. Is there a certain age at which it's beneficial to start doing that? Like, do you start doing that when you hit that middle age, when all the atherosclerosis starts hitting you, like all of a sudden, or is that like something you start early on as you're aging? Well, I think if you use bone health as an example, so you build your peak bone density, you know, when you're a, when you're a teenager, Mm -hmm. you're maybe 20. And so when you hit menopause and you start to chip away a little bit, your bone health, if you built this great reservoir bone is not going to put you into the osteoporotic, maybe not even the osteopenic range. So I would say that while it's cool to know in midlife, we start to get atherosclerosis, we start to have a slowing of our gait speed and walking stairs. Some other studies we do look at midlife women who are already, uh, and especially if you're a woman of color, more likely to be slowing down. Um, that it's good to intervene then, but I would honestly say teaching people about their physical function and their physical activity as they're building their life behaviors is the ultimate preventive medicine. 
And I love how you mentioned the uh, teaching them and educating them during their, like, as they're growing up, because that kind of leads into the next part about misconceptions, because when people are getting through this education process, there's so much information out there, especially with uh, social media being so prevalent. Everyone's on their phones all the time. Everyone follows these fitness influencers on whether it's Instagram, Twitter, whatever it is. There's so many misconceptions about uh, women's health. What are like some of the biggest misconceptions that uh, women have? Oh, I mean, I guess even when I was a kid, you know, that if women, if girls participated in sports, they would get, you know, injured. They weren't kind of capable. There was something about our body intrinsically that was, um, you know, made us incapable of, you know, powerlifting or, you know, heavy duty work in the community. Um, what are some other things? Uh, you know, I know there's some women, like crazy diet recommendations out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah women should yeah. be eating a lot less, no carbohydrates at all. Sure, Cause you got to maintain sure. your figure. Right. The, the kind of simple notion there, there's an issue when women over exercise where they lose their menstrual cycle. And people used to think that women had a set body weight. If they got minus 120 to 119, they lose their body weight or they lose their menstrual cycle. It turns out that you have to give enough calories back into the system. If you're burning too many calories and you don't replace them, your hypothalamus, which is your ability to reproduce, will simply shut down. It's sort of a biological concept. Mm -hmm. If you're not feeding the system, why would that system want to reproduce? So I think science has become you know, more and more uh, capable of understanding uh, that that's really the answer and not that Sheila has a certain set point and if she gets below that weight, everything shuts off. So it's much more elegant and nuanced than that. Yeah, I find it amazing that a lot of these discoveries that we're making are pretty recent compared to how long medicine has been around. So um, I'm really glad that as an institution, medicine is kind of advancing and figuring out all these different nuances between uh, different genders, races, and whatnot to make sure that medicine is specific and catering to everyone. And I'll um, go back to the idea that if everything was a 70 kilogram white male, that's what we knew about. And now as we're including other people in our studies, we're going to learn more because we're finally paying attention. For sure. Yeah. Are there any uh, big misconceptions for people going or uh, for women going through like menopause or at their middle age? Um, I guess I would just say that your ability to modify things is really there. That yes, it's a, it's a biological imperative that we're losing our estrogen and estrogen has certain uh, targets that are really important. And I, and, I, and I miss my estrogen every day, just saying my skin, my <laughs> hair. You know, um, but the fact that these behaviors are also really relevant. Um, and if one of the outcomes of your menopause is that you feel more sort of depressed or moody, or you, you lack this, you have anhedonia, you lack this sort of desire to engage, that you're really missing out on the modifiable parts of midlife uh, and, and, and beyond. And you really should talk to your provider, either your primary care doctor or your OB provider, your gynecological provider, to find out are there things you could do, for instance, um, estrogen supplementation to the vagina. And I'll talk about the pelvic floor, of course, because that's my other big area of interest. Um, and if things change and you're having pain that causes disability, changes your quality of life, it may even change your ability to exercise. So these little decisions around how to supplement things, maybe a topical estrogen, can have a huge impact that goes beyond that one tissue that then changes, let's say, your cardiovascular health trajectory if you're able to get out and exercise. 
Yeah. Um, and since you mentioned the pelvic floor physical therapy, is there any aspect of preventive medicine that can help that out? Because I know you mentioned that pelvic floor goes through a lot of trauma during childbirth area or the time during childbirth. Sorry. Your pelvic floor goes through trauma. If you were a constipated kid, uh, sadly, if you were sexually assaulted, which is a not uncommon phenomenon, um, sadly, if you, uh, overtrain for something, you're lifting weights, or I always kid about those silly, um, kettlebells i'm sorry but swinging a kettlebell between your legs i don't know what function that is like in our usual life i guess maybe uh, so anyhow I, I see people that get injured that injure their muscles and if we could figure that out right away uh assess those muscles but we don't talk about things like are you constipated is it hard to go to the bathroom what has been your experience with sexual activity was there a time when somebody put something in an opening that did not belong there? And then we can work forward with the plan. And now it's really raining. <laughs> you hear it? Yeah, yeah a little about bit. The floor and, the, and the world is saying, bring it, talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And we definitely need to talk about it more. Um, I yes. know. It, the pelvic floor for anyone who's listening is composed of a lot of muscles that are not like ever addressed by most people. And when you compare it to any other muscles, like the biceps, your triceps, maybe your quads and hems, you can strengthen those. Is there a sure. way to strengthen your uh, pelvic floor? Because we always talk about strengthening as a way for preventive medicine. Now I would say this, like any other muscle, yes, there's an origin in your biceps and insertion, and then an action based on that origin and that insertion. Same thing in the pelvis. Um, the other thing about the pelvis is it's always on until you go and sit down to go to the bathroom, as an example. I mean, you have to sort of, from a neurophysiology perspective, turn off the sphincter and let things come out of you. Um, if you have muscles that are too tight because of pain or injury, and then you strengthen them, you could make your symptoms worse. Just like if my biceps still hurt, but I decided I'm going to do 100 curls and I'm going to grin and bear it, it's not going to end up with a functional bicep. So Kegels are great, but not always what the doctor ordered or the physical therapist ordered, because if your muscle is shortened, has trigger points, it's not working well, to put it into a strengthening routine is not the way to, to go. What you need to do is get release techniques, you need you know, physical therapy, you need to understand the way you're using your muscles correctly and incorrectly, you need to do what we call neuromuscular rehabilitation, and then we add in the strengthening. How do you know if you need that? Because most uh, people, when there's problems, they just go straight up to Kegels. Like, that's it. That's a one-stop shop. So how do you know if you need those or you should go the other way and do some rehab or just relax, yes. I guess? I'm a little biased that anyone that comes with symptoms, I really want to get to the root of the problem. I want to give them things to do at home. Possibly I might need to include a physical therapist for some manual training, manual techniques, um, practice, because... You know, I'm not a big believer and I'm a doctor. Here's a piece of paper. You have back pain, go home and do these 10 things. Again, yep. the one size fits all might work for a, a small a small minority of patients, but really individualizing it and then getting that teachable moment to say, now that we've solved that muscle problem in your back or your pelvic floor, here's what you really need to know about physical activity. It is the magic bullet. It is the, the super pill. If you can dose physical activity, you don't need any medicines, ideally, but people sometimes think, just give me a pill. I'll figure it out. You know, I got this. And really physical activity and the ability to sustain that is, is your best, your best medicine ever. 
100%. And we always joke about on this podcast. I think multiple guests have uh, said that people seem to want one pill for every single ill. I think uh, Dr. Mitesh Patel, if you guys listen to that episode, he talks about that. But um, there's so many misconceptions that you can have this pill for so many things to like fix everything, like the Kegels that'll fix every single issue that you have with your pelvic floor. How do you combat these misconceptions? Because there's so many voices that are saying these things on social media and whatnot. So how do you combat that? Well, I hope you have a trusted healthcare provider, whether that's your PM&R physician, your primary doctor, your OB-GYN, your physical therapist, you know, your trainer. Um, Look at the people around you and look at their education their experience, um, and, you know, kind of go to those sources and you can vet some of the things you're reading online, um, with those people. Uh, and you can then sort of decide for yourself. I also think it's kind of a trial and error. Okay. I just did a month of Kegels and now things are getting worse and don't let anybody say, well, I don't really know. I'm not sure why that would be. I'm just telling you why that would be because you took a muscle that's dysfunctional and you've asked to do more and it's failing. But again, back to the pelvic floor, there's sort of so few providers that, um, that there are a lot of those. I don't know from physicians because they don't know. So, uh, working uh, with a group, people that work in a group. So here at our program for abdominal pelvic health, we actually have surgeons and non-surgeons or the American Physical Therapy Association has a women's health section that takes care of pelvic floors. Now, ironically, if you're a man with the pelvic floor problem, you have to find the women's health expert in your community. To see you. <laughs> well, change that to pelvic floor expert. Um, um, and also just to notice nuances about when does it get better? When does it get worse? Because the patient will always tell me the answer of what the problem is. If I listen to the patient and the words they use, it's a squeezing feeling, it's a numb and tingly, there's always information. That's called clinical reasoning. And you want a provider who's going to listen, who's going to educate you, examine you after they show you what they're going to do and get your consent, and then put it all together for you. And that's the kind of provider that you want to have in your life. Yeah. Uh, you touched on a lot of different things in there and we always stress on this podcast, the, um, importance of communication and everything you just talked about is kind of just essentially communication where you want to make sure you listen to the patient. So there's communication from the patient to the physician, the uh, physician should be educating the patient. So there's communication back. And then in that sense, if you have a strong uh, amount of uh, communication, sorry, back and forth, then you have, you'll have a loud and clear message. That's kind of going to get rid of those, those misconceptions and also help the patient move forward. And I think there's also another role for physicians that they should start to be doing, which is kind of what this podcast is addressing is to get their voice heard and communicate not only within the uh, patient physician relationship, but also broadly, because, uh, it seems for some reason that people who are not experts in something have a say in everything. (laughs) And most of the time it ends up not being the correct information or even sometimes potentially harmful information. Mm -hmm. And they tend to have a very loud voice. So having giving physicians like Dr. Dugan is what we're trying to do and bring that solid evidence-based practical information out there and give them a larger voice so they can communicate to a larger population. Well said. Going along with communication, uh, there's people and that one pill kind of thing. People kind of want a bottled up answer into one actionable item. 
and people want things to be easy. So if there's one thing you can tell uh, a female that's trying to get healthier, let's do it a couple of ways. So we can have a younger female that's trying to get healthier and then someone who's in middle age and someone who's older. So three questions in one, what do you tell them if they're trying to get healthier? Well, I would say that for all ages, paying attention to your physical activity is really important and making it jive with all of the responsibilities that you uh, have taken on. Uh, the idea that you can kind of balance work and home and have time to exercise, that's sort of a, a fairy tale. Um, but the idea that you can excel in all these parts of your life, including your vocational pursuits, your family pursuits, and your self-care is really important. You are worthy of self-care. And if you can get that habit of carving out time for yourself and then add in a partner, add in a family, add in a boss, add in a, you know, a grandkids if you're an older woman, that's really important. So I would say take that time for yourself. And it might start small. You might feel that you're not super competent. You know, a pair of shoes getting out the door is a strong statement of self-care. And if you need some motivation for that, uh, listen to our episode with Eddie Cohn. I don't know if it's going to be before this or after this. He talks a lot about, um, he's the greatest powerlifter of all time, but he's also very good at coaching. He talks about starting small and just kind of really good at addressing the situation that someone is in and helping them get started very small and then progressing to whatever it is and stretching the idea that, um, it's not necessarily just about exercising itself to be healthy. It's just that exercising and living a preventive lifestyle, um, kind of improves every other aspect of your life because it allows you to do um, your vocational skills a lot better, allows you to relate with your family better, your husband, wife, whatever it is. Um, preventive medicine just seems to make every aspect of your life better, which is a huge reason we uh, want to do this podcast. Amen again. <laughs> can I get an amen? Yes, you can have several amens. And the rain has stopped, the sun is shining. There we now, go. There, that's that's the message right there. There's hope. There, there is always a way to, to modify things and not to be, not to be um, slight about it. Uh, you know, Women's lives are very complicated. In a moment like COVID, where women are, are being more impacted with service jobs, in, in a moment where we watched somebody get killed and nobody could step in for multiple reasons, or, or there are so many things that could just weigh us down. And, and even just a five-minute walk is a way to connect back to what you can control, which is your body. I hope, I know there are people in unsafe situations that need help too. Um, but just to give yourself that groundedness, is, it's really, it's really kind of, um, it becomes kind of addictive to sort of realize I can control things. And, and as your other colleague said, little by little, you can do more and more and you're going to feel it in all aspects of your life. Sleep, you know, going to the bathroom, all the things that really improve our quality of life are also positively impacted by this. Life. 100%. And yeah that can't be stressed more on this podcast. It's kind of like the whole theme about this is preventive medicine makes everything better. But as we were talking about uh, the disparities, like specifically in neighborhoods in Chicago earlier on, where is that starting point for some of these communities, which might not necessarily be uh, accessible to the different things that other communities might have? What is that starting point? Well, for us, it's going and asking the community, what do they think? So this is our fourth year of walking and on the West side, um, we work with a group of pastors about their own ability to maintain good health and, and pastors are really doctors of the community uh, and they don't always have time to exercise, eat right. Um, they're under a lot of stress. We started working with pastors and then we uh, took one of our relationships and we started walking from the, the stairs of the new uh, Mount Pilgrim Baptist Church 
on Washington Street, right down mm-hmm. to Garfield Park, and seeing this fabulous park. And now, um, in our fourth year, uh, we walk from the stairs of Garfield Park, and we say to the community as we're walking, okay, walking together is powerful. We might do a 10-minute conversation about a chronic disease or about stress or PTSD. And then we walk together to say, how can we make a difference? Because the idea that an academic medical center who cares about health disparities has all the answers for people on the West side who live with lots of limitations is, is kind of ridiculous. And if you think about healthy people, 2000, 2010, the needle hasn't moved much because we haven't asked people in the community, what do you think would be the best way to change uh, your ability to get physical activity? And a lot of times it's, you know, a paycheck, health insurance, a job, my kids being safely coming to and from. That's the stuff that really gets in the way of somebody, let's say, my age with grown children taking care of myself. So it it sounds simple. Here's the recipe. It's so not simple. Um, So coming together in your communities, asking a question uh, and then, you know, using your privilege and your academic ability to do research or to get resources or to have a study where you pay people in the community to be part of the study. These are all really important. Yeah. Um, I know there's the alive project as well, which I was, uh, related with. I'm not exactly sure if that's still going amidst COVID. Yeah, that's the one that came from the work with our pastors, the yeah. living and vibrant energy. That's a great study, great project. Yeah. And the more and more that I study this and get into preventive medicine previously, I just thought kind of, it was more of that health and exercise and get everything out of the way. Maybe if you need to get some screening things done, but, um, not necessarily the biggest part of that, but there's so much else that goes into preventive medicine that kind of is that whole picture of the patient and the situation that that person's in. Cause as you were mentioning, it's a lot about their socioeconomic status. Can we put like, uh, food on the table or my kids going to come home safe. There's a lot of stress and added things that right. go into that, which is very difficult to address. Yes. And, um, and probably has its own weathering effect on like the telomeres of your DNA. So is that part of why there's chronic disease earlier and, 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 you know, black and brown populations, because, you know, we have a life experience. That's your experience. My experience, everybody's is different. Um, and if yours is, is, you know, that there's kind of, continuing discrimination, it has its impact on your body too. You know? Can you talk a little bit about specifically what a lot of those barriers are that some of these populations might feel? Sure. Um, well, I mean, if you're out jogging in the wrong neighborhood, we saw what happened in Georgia, not to be trite. Um, can you be out? Um, are you personally going to be looked at in a suspicious way? Are you in a safe neighborhood? The park path in Garfield Park was a disaster. I mean, broken. I was thinking about that park versus Lincoln Park. And guess what? This year they just repaved the path in, in Garfield Park. Um, oh, so that's, that's the excellent. Yeah. That park, the park is filled with, um, you know, uh, people that have nowhere else to live. Um, and sometimes those people are are out to get resources, so it might not be safe. Uh, again, if you're working the night shift uh, and you uh, have, you know, the only time you can exercise is not at a time where there's lighting in your park. Uh, really, you know, you only have certain resources. You mentioned it before. You're not going to be able to join a health club or get a trainer that will help you with the extrinsic motivation. Are you using the right kind of shoes? I mean, at every level, uh, it's a little more complicated than uh, somebody of privilege who buys their new shoes and, 
joins their pals or, you know, decides to hire a trainer. Um, so even our patients um, deciding between medicines uh, and feeding their children. So then, you know, exercise becomes this huge, you know, this huge sort of fantasy world that you're going to have time to do that. I know it might be a bit reductionist to ask in a podcast like this, and I know it's an incredibly complex issue that probably we honestly don't understand all the complexities of it, but do you potentially have any solutions of things that you could try to solve these? I know you're yeah. already involved in some like the West side walk project, but right, yeah, any yeah, other I solutions wanna, you can think of? Yeah. I don't want to hang crepe. Um, yeah, I think, uh, bringing, I think bringing hope, I think, um, talking to the community, uh, letting people know that you've seen the numbers You've seen the death gap. You want to be helpful with that. Um, to change uh, individuals' behavior, there's this, again, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And a lot of the social science literature would say that, you know, um, needing extrinsic motivation could be helpful to then have an experience where then you become intrinsically motivated to be physically active. Also, feeling like you understand that you have the ability to apply yourself in the world of exercise. It can feel a little intimidating. And, and women older than me that never did team sports and never stretched, that don't know how to check their heart rate, if they're looking for a target heart zone, a lot of it is not feeling like you know, what's called self-efficacy. So making people understand that, like you say, doing anything, walking in and of itself, and to be self-efficacious in how to walk, most of us feel pretty self-efficacious we know mm -hmm. how to walk we know how to get out of our house and get around and, and try to find a path that's at least hopefully somewhat safe so um starting with self-efficacy extrinsic motivation then intrinsic motivation there's lots of studies where they put groups together because having a group of people can extrinsically motivate you um, there's people doing works uh, work here uh, on the west side with mothers and daughters in the african-american community to use that sort of relationship as a way for both of the dyads to be more motivated to do some physical activity together, uh, things like that. Yeah. Self-efficacy might be one of the most important aspects of preventive medicine, honestly, because if you can get a patient or a person or whoever it is to have some sort of belief in themselves or in whatever they're doing, then it kind of becomes a positive snowball where it's just one action leads to another, leads to another, leads to yet another. And before you know it, they're on a much different path than they would, uh, might've been on previously. So I think one of the massive goals of preventive medicine and of this podcast is to develop patients who have a level of self-efficacy, which if we can get them to just start doing one thing, whatever it is, then it kind of snowballs into many others. And then before you know it, they're in a much different place in a much better place where they've prevented many diseases. And as we've been talking about, allows them to live life a lot better where they can do everything else better and they find more fulfillment in whatever else they're doing. Yes. I guess your third amen right there. Your third amen. <laughs> <laughs> is the sun shining this yeah. time? Oh, yeah, for sure. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could solve all the world's problems, but <laughs> yeah. Like if we could solve with somebody to talk it through too. All that great networking. Oh all yeah. If we could solve all the world's problems with this podcast, um, <laughs> I think we'd be in a much different place. I wouldn't have this background. I'd be yeah. in a much different place. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but thank you for your time. Um, sure. I think the last question that we usually have for every single guest mm. is if there's, if you're in a coffee shop, if you're in Starbucks mm. um, and you're ordering your coffee and it's two minutes and someone comes up to you, how do I get healthy? What do you say to them? Two minutes. Uh, pick one thing. Pick one thing that you personally have been uh, uh, thinking that you could change or that's a particular interest to you and whether that be your diet, whether that be 
moving, whether that be a relationship uh, or a sort of a, a psychological thing that you're stuck with, just pick one thing. And then when you do it, pat yourself on the back. Uh, I learned this from community health workers. Uh, there was a, a, a heart failure intervention and this woman just couldn't get started. It was about checking your weight, taking your meds. And she had this junk drawer in her kitchen. Every time she went to get a pen, she was like, oh, this junk drawer. The, she and the CHW, they organized her junk drawer. And then she got on and, and became an active member of the intervention. Wow. Kind so, of thing that's just, you know, it, it's holding you back. It's maybe the conversation with somebody. Pick one thing, make it something that you can get done, and then pat yourself on the back. That's the first step to self efficacy. I'm jumping onto your two minutes here, but I've talked about that a lot as well, where it's just oftentimes one thing that you can take under your own control right. and then just do it, make it a habit or whatever it is, like whether it's keeping that cabinet clean, the drawer clean. Or for me, honestly, what I did was I was trying to uh, develop some more, um, like, how do I say, uh, higher self-efficacy, I guess, a higher self-confidence. One of the things that I said I can control is every morning I'm right-handed. I'm going to brush my teeth with my left hand. Ah, Why? Who knows? But I have a control over it. I'm going to want, and I can do it. I'm just going to keep doing it. So Great. it's a lot about those little snowballs that say, okay, I can get this little win. So let's try to translate that win somewhere else. And then Right. Go from there. Amen. Stupid example, I know, but it's no, sometimes good. it's those small, stupid things that lead yeah. to a massive and change. Obviously, in your right brain as your left hand is acting. That's pretty cool. You know, exactly, it could train something else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unbeknownst benefits, especially if you're right. a surgeon. Not a surgeon here, but it'd <laughs> right. be good training. Okay. So yeah, we want to thank you for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, this has been another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Be safe. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at Prevent Podcast. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time.